0: Hello, and welcome to The Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy, and for today's interview, I'm joined by Lauren Ashcraft, who's running for office in New York's 12th Congressional District. Lauren Ashcraft, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: On your campaign website, you highlight how strength, strong will, and determination are key themes throughout your life story. Could you tell us a bit about that story and how it's led to you running for Congress now in New York?
1: Yeah, so my family uh, really inspired me to run and their story and their struggles. So on one side of my family, my grandmother was from Japan, and she met my grandfather when he was serving in the Air Force, and they fell in love and had my dad in Japan. And then when my grandfather's service was complete, they uh, settled in West Virginia, where my grandfather was from, and obviously not the most friendly place to be a Japanese person in the 50s and 60s. So uh, it, it was actually really horrible whenever my grandfather was a victim of the 1968 Farmington Mine disaster. For so many reasons, he lost his life, and that was kind of the very beginning of people paying attention to workplace safety and regulations for mines. And uh, my grandmother was left a single mother and widow, Japanese woman in the middle of West Virginia, and lived off of really, really small social security checks that were a result of my grandfather's short work history. And that's how she fed my father and how she kind of survived after that accident and so whenever i'm looking at programs like social security and hear politicians that are like oh you know this program's gonna run out of money we don't have enough money for this and that these are things that keep people alive and people like my family would not be i wouldn't be here if if social security didn't keep my my dad alive so um i look at how social security is funded And there's an income contribution cap of $133,000 per year. So if you make below that amount, you're taxed on your entire income. And then if you make above that amount up until, you know, you're a billionaire or you're in the top 1% of our society, you still only pay up to the $133,000. So even just looking at that specific program, which is so important to, keep so many people alive in our society. It's ridiculous to think of the fact that the working class is carrying that burden while the Jeff Bezos of the world are basically dropping pennies in huge buckets. So that's one thing. These income contribution caps that protect the wealthiest in our society absolutely have to go and we have to restructure our taxation so that Billionaires in the top 1% pay what they should have always paid. And we give relief to the working class who have been carrying all these burdens in our society for all this time. So that's one part of my family. And also, just watching how we're treating immigrants seeking a better life in this country is absolutely disgusting and horrifying. And my team and also some fellow activists and I recently went to an ICE detention center in New Jersey. And we got a chance to meet with um, detainees, people who've spent their entire lives here because their family immigrated with them when they were, they were two years old. And something happened and they ended up in an ICE detention center and are voluntarily leaving the country and going to a place they've never made any memories and they don't have any family because of how our system is set up. So that's why I'm so passionate about welcoming everyone who wants to be here and making our immigration uh, easier, facilitating people wanting to be here and be part of our society. And then also decriminalizing all entry into our country because we are all, I mean, my family comes from England and from Japan and from Germany, and multiple other places, according to my 23andMe. But we're all a product of immigration here in some way, unless you're, uh, you know, indigenous. And the way that we're treating people seeking a better life here is awful. And I think about the fact that my grandmother uh, moved to this country not that long after people that looked like her and had the same heritage were put in internment camps. And I carry that with me every single day to know that some things, there's some loop that's disconnected in this country and we keep repeating the same history over and over. And so I am standing up against ICE and standing up against our horrible xenophobic immigration system. And we should abolish ICE, give it a $0 budget and make it really easy and cheap for people who want to come into this country to actually become the Americans that they are. That's one side of my family. And on the other side, my grandfather, I grew up, um, he unfortunately fell while he was working. He was a mechanic and broke his neck and became a quadriplegic. So my mother and grandmother essentially became his caretakers because it was too expensive to hire somebody. And I just grew up very, very aware of the lack of accessibility, the lack of programs that help people like my grandfather and my family. And whenever we're looking at, if you're living off of disability payments, um, the maximum that you can receive from the government if you cannot work, if you have dependents, and if you live in one of our most expensive cities in the United States, the maximum you can get Per month is $2,300, and most people don't get that much. And that in New York City, as you probably know, if you're trying to feed a family and pay rent off of $2,300 per month, you are not going to survive. So the fact that we've allowed these programs to go on the way that they have, and that we're ignoring entire populations of people because I go, I don't know. I can't even. Representation just hasn't paid attention to them. It's infuriating. And another example is the Americans with Disabilities Act is 29 years old and it does the absolute bare minimum. I'm glad that it's there, but it doesn't go far enough because if you, ha- you know, for example, need a wheelchair and you can't access your workplace, you have to sue, <laughs> You have to get an attorney to represent you and take that place to court. And first of all, our subway system, uh, only 25% of the subway stops are, are disability accessible and have elevators. And so the burden is on you to get a lawyer, to get to court, to take off work and sit in court, and to sue. So I want to expand The Americans with Disabilities Act, so that it's enforced by the federal government and no longer the burden of people that are just trying to survive in this system that's totally against them. So, there are so many broken parts of our society, and growing up the way that I did really helped me to see that and become very passionate about it. And I have also, to survive in New York, I have worked in the financial sector, which That is where I became radicalized, if I'm being completely honest. I am a democratic socialist, and I seek to actually break up the banks by reinstating the Glass-Steagall Act. And whenever we're looking at Donald Trump's tax cuts to huge corporations, those tax cuts ended up just becoming CEO bonuses and pay raises. And absolutely did not trickle down to the average worker in the industry, which is about 15% of people that live in my district trying to survive by working in the banking sector. So whenever we're looking at increased layoffs and banking banks in our district seeking to relocate to, for example, Texas or uh, Argentina or Ohio because it's cheaper, then that means 15% of my district is going to lose their jobs, despite the fact that we just handed these banks a whole bunch of money in the last years. So our system is so broken, and at the center of all of that is this corporate money and politics that we were talking about shortly before this interview, is all of, all of these corporations throw money at politicians that are protecting the status quo and protecting these corporations' ability to just generate loads of profit at the people's expense, And because I've worked in the private sector, I understand, you know, the bottom line and that, you know, corporations and CEOs, they are trying to increase value for their shareholders. And I get all that. (laughs) But the problem is that our representatives have allowed a system in which that's done at the people's expense. And so no more corporate handouts no more income contribution caps that protect billionaires. I want to change the way that we fund our programs and also have been meeting with economic experts that have uh, discussed modern monetary theory with me. And just the whole way that we're looking at things is so wrong. And that's why I'm running a 100% grassroots and people-powered campaign because people should be the only influence in politics. And and we're so far from that right now that we, you know, we are running across the entire country as grassroots candidates. And the more of us that can can get in there and can partner with each other and vote to remove this corporate influence and vote for the right things that benefit people, this world is going to start looking so much better and we can reprioritize and, and really make a difference in, 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 in the direction that we've been going in.
0: You answered one of my questions that I was going to ask you later in that there, which was in 2003, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency was created. There's been a lot of controversy about the treatment of immigrants. You touched on that from a personal perspective there as to how that impacted your family over the years, the way that immigrants have been treated in America. And we've heard in recent months stories about the conditions that migrants have been held in in ICE detention facilities, conditions that have been described as inhumane. You said in that answer there that you believe it should be disbanded. What would you replace it with, if anything? What system would you put in place that you believe would be better way of treating immigrants in this country than ICE has been?
1: So ICE and the detention facilities, it's so frustrating because it all ties back to profit. And so many of these facilities that people are being kept in are for-profit prisons. And um, somebody is making a whole lot of money uh, by keeping immigrants in cages And so I would just like to decriminalize um, crossing the border and make sure that we're treating people like people and people coming to this country as Americans. And we wouldn't need to be putting people in prison if it weren't illegal to come into this country And if we helped people to legally immigrate, if that's what they really want to do.
0: Because of your view that ICE should be disbanded, Republicans would accuse you of not wanting to protect America's borders. I'm sure that's something you heard from Republicans or those on the right in response Mm -hmm. to the disbanding of ICE. Which, by the way, everyone always forgets that ICE isn't actually that old an organization. People make it seem like it's an organization that has been in America for decades and decades, when in reality it came in during the George W. Bush administration. How would you refute the claims, though, from Republicans that disbanding ICE means that you don't care about protecting America's borders? And what would you do to safeguard America's borders uh, in a way that, as you touched on, would be humane and would treat immigrants with the respect that you believe that they deserve
1: i would i would actually just ask questions and and i grew up in rural pennsylvania and i grew up in a conservative family and i was in steel and coal country for my childhood and youth and i understand what's been fed to to everyone and i I understand where they're coming from and why they have the concerns i do that they do because that's what's told to you and i I actually I sought to leave uh the midwest i I wanted to live in New York, which is i guess specifically live in Queens, which is one of the most diverse places in the entire world, because I love it, and so my life and my political journey have been, ha- have, you know, I've come from a conservative world. Now I'm a democratic socialist running for office with a platform that I'm really passionate about. And I would just, I love having these discussions because whenever you sit down and, and talk with somebody and remove the politics from it, then you can actually get to the root of, of where the thoughts originate. And maybe even get them to think in a different way. So I would ask questions like, what are we afraid of if, if people enter into this country? And are we afraid of violence? Are we afraid of terrorism? Because I would refute that with the fact that most of the terrorism in the United States in the last years has been committed by white Christian American men and and if we're afraid of people going into malls and concerts and movie theaters with guns then why don't we address the gun laws and and make them more common sense so that we're not arming people that might go into these places and cause harm to others And if you're worried about the economy, if you're worried about not having a job, then I would talk about the federal jobs guarantee, which I'm really passionate about. And I actually just did a survey asking how many people would leave their job if we had a federal jobs guarantee and single payer Medicare for all so that we remove this ball and chain connecting you to your current employer, which you might not like. 72% of people would leave their job to pursue their dreams, which they're not doing because we're tied to our employers right now. So with a federal jobs guarantee, you would be guaranteed a livable wage doing something that is beneficial to society. And we need all hands on deck to combat this climate disaster and to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. There are enough jobs and enough and there's enough work, there's enough valuable work that you can contribute to society, you would receive a livable wage. So that is not, if you're worried about coming people coming in and, and being a hired over you, that's not a concern. If you're worried about the economy, I would like to remind especially New Yorkers about the fact that immigrants and especially undocumented immigrants are are the backbone of of our city, and they go so unrecognized. And in my district, which is one of the wealthiest districts in the world, we see um, senior citizens that came here undocumented, have paid into our system the, their whole lives, and are now, you know, looking for recyclables that they can take to a grocery store and get basically $5 for a huge bag of plastic bottles because they they aren't eligible for, um, you know, our retirement type of benefits towards the end of their lives. And I just see, I see so many people that worked their entire lives contributing to our society that we are ignoring at this time and i guess i would i would answer their questions with some more questions just to see what exactly they're afraid of and i i am very sad that there has been such a focus on xenophobia whenever we're we're looking at immigration and like i mentioned earlier all of us all of our ancestors came from other places at some point so I don't understand that at what point in history did we decide, all right, we're the actual American. Forget the Native Americans that we stole their land and killed. Like, we're the ones here, and then anyone who comes after X year is not a real American, and, and we don't treat them like humans. I don't understand how we got there, but I would like to be part of stopping
0: that. You raised the federal jobs guarantee that you want to implement if elected to Congress. In 2018, the Trump administration handed large corporations a record tax cut, promising that workers and Americans would feel the benefit of this tax cut. But what happened was the money was used to line the pockets of the people who were executives by giving out bonuses or the people who were the owners of the company rather than the workers within the company. And wages weren't increased, more workers weren't hired, the money went into the pockets of these executives. Why are politicians resisting and businesses opposing attempts that would benefit workers by putting more money in the pockets of workers or increasing the rights of workers or hiring more workers when these sorts of moves happen?
1: I So there. this is a really loaded answer. Uh, a couple things. If you look at studies about CEOs and who they are and billionaires, you don't become a billionaire and a CEO by having some good ideas. If you look at the trajectory of Jeff Bezos and how he became who he is today and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and the likes of all of them. If you look at their careers, there have been a lot of people that have, you know, been screwed over and have gotten their benefits taken away from them. It's, we have to stop thinking that if handed millions or billions of dollars that the the 1% is going to do the right thing because if you look at if you look at psychological studies one of the highest rates of uh psychopath I'm so sorry if you're not one of them and you're listening to this but we one of the highest rates of psychopathy is in CEOs of huge corporations and we have to stop pretending that they're just going to do the right thing that and and turn around with that money and make sure everyone in their whole company is is having you know a livable wage and can feed their family um, so now that we're past that <laughs> um, i I did mention that survey that I did on Twitter and the fact that so many people would leave their jobs and look for something else that better suits them or matches with their ideology if their health care weren't tied to their employer is alarming. So if you look at the fact that single-payer Medicare for All would actually cost people and corporations less money than the current system, And if you look at the fact that corporations are against it and are donating to politicians that are saying it's not possible, I think it answers a lot of questions because employers that don't treat their workers very well want some reason that people are forced to stay with them. So if we did have a federal jobs guarantee, and single-payer Medicare for all so that you can leave your job and still not worry about going bankrupt if you have to go to the doctor, um, then, you know, it answers a lot of questions about why. And it's infuriating whenever you get to the root cause of, of all of this, and it is always the corporate money in politics, which we've allowed until now. And I agree with you, and I actually just wrote a blog entry about this, particularly about the financial and banking industry, that um, if we're looking at J.P. Morgan, for example, and I used to work there um, as a project manager that um, helped to ensure that they were following their banking regulations. If we're looking at J.P. Morgan and what they publicized in the last year and months, then we know that they were able to generate $3.7 billion in profit in addition to their normal profit because of the corporate tax cuts that Trump gave them. And as a result, turned around and Jamie Dimon got a huge bonus, a huge raise. Um, and the average workers are feeling, uh, are not feeling the impact of trickle down but instead are actually, you know, getting told that their job may end or get moved to Texas. And um, like I mentioned, about 15% of the district is employed by banks, because that's what one of the major industries is here. And if you're looking at people who are administrative assistants and IT specialists and project managers and, legal specialists and attorneys. If you're looking at people that aren't CEOs and senior executives, then these people also have families to feed and rent to pay. And whenever a CEO turns around with billions of dollars and ends a bunch of jobs in a city that should normally be where a big bank's headquarters are, then it makes a big difference for my community that I'm trying to fight for. And I don't feel like our current representative has talked at all about this and raised the struggles that her district is facing. And not enough people are calling these corporations out. And we have to stop pretending like they're going to do the right thing because they're going to exist in the space that we as representation give them. And we have given them all the space in the world and allowed them to keep the money at the very top. And that will change when I get into office and when the other progressive candidates that are running in a grassroots way get into office.
0: We've talked about money and politics here during this interview, so So let's go into that. You proudly tout how your campaign is 100% people-powered and 100% grassroots. That's obviously going to put you at a disadvantage against your Democratic primary opponent and ultimately anyone you face in the general election if you win the primary. Why have you taken that approach running for office when it will put you at a disadvantage? Why do you think it's so important to highlight how super PACs, corporate donors, moneyed interests shouldn't be involved in the political process of an election and ultimately of governing?
1: Um so I fundraising in a grassroots way is miserable. <laughs> and I, just being completely honest, um call calling through lists of strangers and introducing yourself, especially as someone with social anxiety like I have, is not fun. But we are doing this from a a a point in our hearts that we have so much anger and I'm so angry. And I'm seeing my country continue down a path that's just destructive for everyone except the top 1%. And I think I am I am a student of history, and I've studied abroad and lived in Germany and was lucky to have a historian as a host father there and came home and studied international relations and learned about World history, which includes a lot of mistakes and, and horrible things that, you know, my country ha- has has led. And whenever I think about where we're headed and the xenophobic and fascist direction that we're 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 moving in where we're allowing income disparity to to get worse and worse. And we're allowing people to die and ration their medicine and go into lifetimes of debt because they went to the emergency room. I want to know that I've done something about it. And I I entered this race knowing that we do have a path to victory and we do have a chance, especially given the fact that there are so many people that we can get to vote for the first time and introduce this this race to and they aren't aware of our representative and we can introduce our campaign and platform for the first time and talk about why it's so important and we're getting people to sign sign up to vote we're getting people passionate pledging to show up to vote for for me and it's it's going to be hard it already has been but we're going to keep going cause it's the right thing to do. And I, I want to be able to say that I've done all I can. And this, what I, when I'm doing, I'm running for office. I'm running for office to change our, our path. And I am doing it out of a place of passion. And I don't necessarily see myself as, as a lifetime politician. Um, my passion is in grassroots organizing and, and helping my community. And um, I, I'm a stand-up comedian and have used that to kind of fundraise and organize for my community and raise awareness about organizations that are fighting for our rights. And I don't, I don't want to retire in Congress, but I have a goal and I know what needs to be changed and I will be really annoyingly loud about it. And I'm really excited about getting into office with a bunch of other people like you have interviewed, and doing this as a team. We are we are seeking out to 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 topple the system as it is, and it is possible. It's hard, and uh, if we didn't have a path to victory, then you wouldn't see the establishment so scared right now.
0: On that note, you've. Been endorsed by Brand New Congress, a group that seeks to elect regular working people to Congress who put people before party to make government more accountable and responsible to the needs of all Americans. This group wants to change Congress in the way that you're talking about there. But why do you believe some politicians don't put people above party in this way? Do you think it is the corporate interest? Do you think it's the desire to keep their job in Congress rather than going there to work for the people. What is the reason behind their decision to not put their constituents first in all instances?
1: I honestly, so I like to say that there's a difference between a politician and a representative. And I I don't seek to be a politician and certainly not the type of politician that we have in office right now. Um, there are people that like whatever power comes with it and notoriety and they like the soirees and having an entourage and I don't know, having, having the influence that they have and making decisions and whatever. There are people who do it for the wrong reasons and they are, they are the ones connected to the money and the systems and, They haven't done anything to stop the corporate PAC influence in politics because it's what keeps them there. Um, So, yeah, I, I like to say that I'd like to be a representative, and I have a goal. I would like to accomplish it and raise as much awareness about my goals and platforms as possible. And I actually am supportive of term limits, which we don't have for Congress, I think that the maximum you should be allowed to be uh, in in the House of Representatives is 12 years. And then if you do go on to be elected to the Senate, then you'd have another 12 years. And I also believe that there should be term limits for the Supreme Court justices, because we have just allowed these lifetime politicians to dictate the direction of our country, and they've done a really bad job. And it is very hard to get them out. And we are, we are running at a disadvantage, which is why grassroots fundraising is so important. And if you are listening and are passionate about the message and want to help, then I definitely welcome people to check out my website, laurenashgrap.com, and, and donate if you are an American. <laughs> but uh, it's hard. But the fact that there is a brand new Congress and that we are a slate and we're a coalition and we're supporting each other, it makes it a little bit easier and less scary. And we can bounce ideas off of each other and talk policy and help tweak each other's policies and platforms. And we, whenever we do get into office together, you're going to see a lot of change be able to happen much more quickly because there there is going to be this coalition that is just really eager to, to push us in the right direction.
0: What would you say to those that think term limits could have a negative side, though? Because there's that positive element that you highlight on your website of attacking the broken political system, trying to fix it by removing the members of Congress who spend their time in office – focusing on their career, becoming increasingly disconnected from constituents, thinking about fundraising, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to cement their place in Washington. There's that element of it that a lot of people might agree with. But the concern some people have is that by limiting the time people can spend in Congress, while you get rid of individuals that aren't serving their constituents to the best of their ability, you also lose hardworking talented, educated individuals, people who might be specialists in certain areas, who are doing a lot of good for their constituents. So how do you balance that out with the, in this idea of term going
1: So you're going you're gonna to see kind of my lack of ego, which I get called out about a lot, and people aren't used to seeing a politician that doesn't want to be a politician. So bear with me here. But the fact that we have this idea that only one person can be good enough to accomplish the goals that we set out to do, I think we have to kind of breathe and get through that and realize, for example, Ocasio Cortez, love her so much. And the fact that she has been able to make the Green New Deal part of her everyday conversation in less than a year in her first term in Congress is ridiculously cool, and whenever I think of who I wouldn't want to push out of office with term limits, she she comes to mind first, Um, but to think that she kind of has to stay in that position for the next 60 years because there's no one else in District 14 in New York that she could kind of mentor and and help to train about how things work in Congress and, um, you know, endorse them on her way out. I don't think – I think that we have to get past this idea of politicians and people in office and representatives kind of having this hero thing about them. And I say that as a huge fan of Ocasio-Cortez and a huge fan of Bernie Sanders, for example – And I do think that they are the right people to do what they're setting out to do at this time. But to think that District 14 can't have somebody that comes after Ocasio-Cortez has accomplished the goals that she set out to do and that we can all move on in a, a great direction together after, I don't think that we have to worry about that. And it will do so much better then it'll do so much more good than bad. And if if AOC wants to go on and run for Senate, then she absolutely should. And then eventually president. So I think two two edges to that sword. We expect a lot of people and can't imagine basically life without them in that position ever. And we have to kind of get over that as a society. And... Also realize that they're humans, too. Well, not all of them, if I'm being honest. But if we want to elect real compassionate humans that care about their communities, then maybe they don't necessarily want to be in office for the rest of their lives. And I don't. So it's okay to kind of let go and to train people to take over when they're ready to let go. And we can keep moving in a better direction if we stop if if we just kind of let go a little bit i think
0: recently the democratic party won control of the virginia state house and the virginia state senate giving the democrats control of all three branches of government in the state the first time in 25 years this victory could have national implications as it could see Virginia become the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. The last attempt to do this in Virginia fell by one vote when Republicans controlled the state legislature. So it could pass this time, which could finally see it become part of the U.S. Constitution after nearly a century of work. How big is this moment for women's rights?
1: (laughs) Um... I actually, I'm so excited about it that I can't really express it, and I am somebody who's, like, my life has been dedicated to to gender equity, and I've been an organizer for the Women's March, and have led gender justice committees, and every workplace that I've been a part of, I've forced things like lean in circles and women's rights conversations in my workplaces. This is like my bread and butter. So one of the realizations that we as American women have all had is technically, according to federal law, there is nothing stating that we are equal to men and other genders at this time. And that's a hard pill to swallow, especially, and I know, that we feel equal and we can vote, we can work. Our pay is not equal. <laughs> we don't have parental leave guaranteed by law in most states. Um, and we've never seen a woman president, for example. We see lack of lack of true representation still in Congress, in the Senate, on the, on the Supreme Court. There are so many places that we are still not equal. And one of them is in the Constitution. So I am so excited that we are moving in the direction of actually putting that into written law, because it will mean a lot, especially if we, you know, God forbid, can't get rid of Trump in 2020, which, please, everyone, <laughs> let's, let's get Bernie Sanders elected as the nominee and everybody get out, canvass for him, and then we won't have to have that conversation. But if we don't get him out of office and we allow him four more years to put more people on the Supreme Court, then those are the people that are going to be interpreting all of the, the cases that make it to them and interpreting whether I'm equal or not. And I don't necessarily trust the current Supreme Court with my life, and I certainly wouldn't trust a Supreme Court with four more years of Trump with more of his appointees. So the fact that we can put it into writing that you're equal no matter what gender you identify with um, is really important, especially now. It protects future generations. It will open up so many doors for us. And... One of the things that we actually have to focus on whenever you know I am developing a platform that I can spread messages about certain things, and I'm really excited about that because local and state offices matter a lot. And if I get into office, if I can help other progressives get into office as well at all levels, and make sure that we are moving in the right direction at all levels of government. That's exactly what I want to do with my time. And we're seeing the impact that Virginia turning blue can have on the rest of the country. And it's really exciting because I do feel a lot of hope and I feel us moving in in a good in a good direction here, but we have to keep it moving in that direction.
0: As you acknowledged in that answer there. While this element of women's rights might be about to become part of the constitution, there are still other issues that need addressing. Again, people can find this point on your website, but the wage gap hasn't been closed. Paid parental leave is not a mandatory employer benefit. The Violence Against Women Act was allowed to expire because of partisan disagreements. What would you do if elected Congress to fight for women's rights? What how would you make sure that these issues got addressed in Congress beyond just the Equal Rights Amendment? What, what other steps do you think should be taken?
1: Yeah. So like you mentioned, paid parental leave is so important and we're so behind compared to the rest of the developed world. Um, and New York has paid parental leave because states and local governments are are very important but federally, uh, that is not the case, and it's really embarrassing when you look at, for example, Scandinavia, that allows you to take, I believe, up to a year off to take care of your new child, um, when here, you might have to quit your job and lose your income, you might have to just not have kids at all, and We're just creating a society where the only people that can survive are the already wealthy. So, yes, paid parental leave. We've also released a plan for pay transparency called the Even the Playing Field Act. If you look at the fact that some women, women of color, um, earn as low as 58 cents for every dollar that a white man earns in the United States right now, That's totally unacceptable. And I know my opponent, the incumbent, has bragged about, you know, fighting for for gender justice. But I haven't seen any kind of plans come from her that would actually address this. So here's our plan. Every large employer that has 250 or more employees would be forced to be fully transparent uh, with the wages that would be offered on every single job posting. So right now, if, uh, if I'm applying to a job, a lot of the times you don't hear back at all, but you could also maybe hear back. And then down the line, if you make it to a couple interviews, somebody in HR is going to ask you what kind of salary you imagine getting from this role. And if you overshoot by too much, then that's the end of the road, and you've wasted your time. And if you undersell yourself and ask for too small of an amount, then the company is going to be really happy and give you way less than they would have given somebody else. And they otherwise could give you less than they would give someone else based on your gender, your race, your sexual orientation, your religion. There are so many things that have caused a wage gap in our society that employers have taken great advantage of. So I think that we absolutely should be pushing for pay transparency. And then you know that if you get offered a job at that company or in that place, that you would be getting the same wage as anyone else, regardless of whatever your in their background is. So I think we absolutely can take steps in, you know, steps in this direction and fight for equality, but no one has had the guts to do it because their big donors would be sad. Which is, again, I hate to be annoying with this, but the root cause of all of these issues go back to this corporate money in politics and politicians not want not wanting to anger their donors.
0: And that's why your campaign is running on this 100% people-powered, 100% grassroots approach because you recognize the issues that money and politics is causing when it comes to not just the obvious, but how that seeps through into every other decision lawmakers are making.
1: Yep, exactly. There is no way that I could fight for getting corporate money out of politics if it came anywhere near my campaign. So you're absolutely correct.
0: Could you give listeners the 60 second summary why They should vote for you in New York's 12th congressional district.
1: Yeah, so I am a grassroots candidate that's had a background in community organizing with the Women's March and also organizing through my stand-up comedy career and have worked in the financial sector so I understand how it works and how these huge corporations work. And I want to take my knowledge to the Financial Services Committee and make sure that our banks and our huge corporations are held accountable to the people and not the other way around because that's what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for people to be the only influence in politics and I'm going to use my family background, my work background, my organizing background and I'm going in there to fight and advocate in a way that District 12 has not had. And I want to partner with other progressive leaders running at all different levels of office and make sure that we can fight this as a team because that's exactly what needs to happen. We can't do that alone. So I am running to be a representative in a way that my district has not had. And I would love to just remain really connected to my constituents and also fight for term limits and partner with the next person that can replace me to continue this fight. So it's different, it's new, but that's exactly what we need because our planet is dying, people are dying, and our representatives have allowed it and are certainly not fighting to reverse it. So definitely invite you to check out my website, laurenashcraft.com, and also follow me on social media at Vote Ashcraft, and would love to answer any of your questions and stay in touch and also would just love to have you follow our journey.
0: Lauren Ashcraft. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time.
0: That was Lauren Ashcraft, who's running for Congress in New York's 12th Congressional District. You can find out more about her on Twitter at VoteAshcraft or at LaurenAshcraft.com. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy, If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.